ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Jay Byrne Murphy. He's the founder and chairman of the award-winning company Digiplex, the largest operator of data centers in the Nordic countries. He's also the author of the book Le Deal, a memoir of his experiences building a billion-dollar business in Europe as the co-founder of MacArthur Glen, the developer-owner of the first fashion designer outlet centers in Europe. It's a real-life case study and the topic of our conversation today. Byrne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I read a lot of business books, a lot. And your book is really something special. It reads like a novel, but it's all true. And in the process of reading the stories you share, the reader internalizes some very valuable lessons about business, especially working internationally. And the book is incredibly rich and really engaging. And the lessons are nuanced and valuable. So you can we can really only scratch the surface in this conversation. First, for listeners who aren't really aware, if you could set the stage about MacArthur Glen and the mountain you were setting out to scale. Uh, certainly. Thank you. The tale when they described from 30,000 feet is the SNL banking crisis of 1991 came screaming across the American economy and hit the country very hard, but hit my sector very hard, which was urban redevelopment. Uh, I was very active in downtown Washington, D.C. with historic buildings and et cetera. And the bottom line is I had to find something else to do somewhere else. And between uh, having the idea of moving to Paris, France and importing the concept of outlet shopping to actually finding myself in a hotel room over there was 30 days start to finish. Uh, and I thought I'd go home after 10 days of reconnaissance and I never went home. And my wife joined me sometime later with our 10 month old baby. And in essence, it's the story of uh, a naive young American who rather quickly gets himself deeply in over his head, has brought his whole family over with him has bet the farm uh, when they didn't actually have a farm. The farm was lost in the SNL banking <laughs> crisis. And then um, there is a firestorm of um, mostly politicians, but other unsavory characters that are out to get me and kill the concept. And um, it's all true. And it was all uh, way more hair raising than I had ever expected. And at one point, I did feel like Alice in Wonderland, where strange things happen with strange people around you fashion designer outlets, they didn't exist in Europe. I mean, that's a kind of important thing. This was a brand new concept, right? This was a brand new. It was, that element of it or that version of it was actually brand new in America. And a large company went public with the idea uh, just before I moved over there. That was the catalyst. What I had anticipated was that in the old world where they preserve for very, very valid reasons, their uh, retail core, their downtown fabrics, that this ended up being a wildly controversial concept. And in particular, Jacques Chirac, at that point, just finishing up as mayor of Paris, wanted to be president of the Republic. And he needed the retailers' votes because they see many, many, many faces again week after week after week. And if they're angry with the candidate, they tell everybody across the meat and cheese counter, I'm angry with this candidate, don't vote for them. And I got caught up in a national election and national political forces that I had no idea existed, much less would sweep me up into them. 
It's so fascinating. I, I think also one of my favorite lines in your book, when you're describing the testing time of a new business, getting things off the ground, you, you call it this excruciating process. And that's the real story of entrepreneurship. Are you being hyperbolic when you call it excruciating? No. no. Exactly. So entrepreneurs, you have been forewarned. This is what you're in for. So obviously, to keep things simple, you didn't just start in in Paris. You also decided to open in the UK simultaneously. Um, And initially, when I was reading about the UK versus Paris experience, I thought the UK would obviously be much easier sharing a language, colonial history. But you relate a story early on, one of your first meetings. It really made you realize that even in the UK, you were going to be up a little bit against some culture. Well, it's a, it's presumed that we speak the same language. We have somewhat uh, similar heritage that obviously whatever can work in America just fits hand in glove and will work in, in England and the UK. Uh, not so. Not so at all. We we share a common language. We share a lot of common culture, but we're separated by a common language. And in this case, I was the young, um, aggressive, apparently, by their standards, entrepreneur with his new idea. And when I described it to a senior executive at one of the old, old line uh, British labels, um, you know, St. James Street and all that, of course, um, he looked at me and he said, you must be joking. And I didn't know what I said that was funny, but I said, actually, I'm not joking. I think it'd be very good for your brand. He said that I would never do that to my brand to go into Alex Source. That'll never work in this country. And frankly, I can't imagine why you're in my office. And that was the end of that. Um, And so you're up against political forces in one side, cultural um, biases in another side. And there was a reason why I was over in Europe. My finances were crushed in America. We were in a deep recession. There was no, not much chance of it coming back anytime soon there. When I, when I mean crushed, I mean I did not have much money to get this up and going. I thought it would be fairly easy mm. to find a partner who believed in it, and then I'd show them the ropes, and off that person or that company would go. There was no okay. partner forthcoming. Well, right. And an idea can seem like a slam dunk, but then all of a sudden, if other people just don't see it, when an entrepreneur enters a new market and locals say, it won't work, we understand the culture, it won't work, you don't understand. What do you listen to and what do you ignore? How did you, how do you navigate that? You have to believe in yourself, number one. <laughs> Because at the moment, nobody's believing in you, at least not in your host country. Um, You have to always keep the end in sight, whether you're in your uh, the town you grew up in or some foreign culture. And, And then you say, well, how much do I have to how much room do I have to adapt the concept itself and still keep it pure enough that it'll work? Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to the introduction, for example, of Disney into Europe, Disneyland outside of Paris, which was a disaster right. for several years and has been hobbled and, and wounded, frankly, ever since. Mm. And uh, that was a case of American naivete who never took context into consideration. Some context is basic as friends like to drink wine at lunch and at every meal outside of breakfast. So why would you ban that in a theme park? I came in with the concept of uh, outlet stores and it was considered heresy. You have to believe in it and then you have to build your coalition of those who will have credibility in the local environment, whether it's the town next door in America or Paris in France. And bit by bit by bit, before your money runs out, you have to take that coalition and convince the decision makers, this is in their interest to say yes. 
right? That they're they're on side with you. When you moved to Paris with your young family and and right away, you started to observe things that signaled some of the cultural tendencies that really telegraphed what you were up against. And for me, the story that really distilled it was about the presser. Could you explain that story for people who obviously haven't read the book yet? And then we can talk about how this microcosm of job protection would signal some of the things you were going to face. In Paris, the theme is job preservation, not as in America, job creation. And in this case, it's it's about dry cleaners or in particular one element of the dry cleaning, which is the individual who uh, presses your shirts or other clothes after it's gone through the wash. And you'll find these tiny, small little um, dry cleaning shops dotted throughout um, Paris and they will often clean on site, but they will press on site. And as you walk in, you'll see this overhead. Um, it, it, there are about a dozen different irons up there. There are no electrical cords. They are cast iron. And underneath them, there is a gas flame that keeps them heated at all times. And he, always a he that I saw on this element of it, is very hot. And he's reaching up and he's putting a cool iron back in the rack takes a hot iron down and continues pressing the clothes. And that is his metier. That's what they call, it's not just his job, it's his job, occupation, his cultural fit into the overall urban and cultural fabric. That is who he is and that deserves protection. Hmm. And that concept of protecting one's metier uh, is infused throughout the French culture and many other elements of Europe, especially Southern Europe. And when I saw that, I realized I am witnessing a 17th or 18th century manual labor solution to what could be a very quick electronic solution or otherwise. Mm. And I thought the first time I saw it, oh, that's so quaint. They have a throwback here. And then you realize <laughs> there, are, there are dozens of these sprinkled around Paris. And then I thought, I don't have a point of reference quite ready to handle this. Um, I better start doing more research. Well, right. It's interesting at what point things get locked in or something gets frozen in in amber. But this penchant for job protection, actually, you leveraged really interestingly when you decided to roll the dice and move forward with building, even though there were legal appeals pending. And can you explain your risk assessment there? A real aha moment. Uh, Well, I think that's in the chapter of the deal of the book that's called uh, The Defining Moment. (laughs) So Uh, maybe. (laughs) It was on the edge uh, when everything, I'd already bet the farm. It just took me a long time to realize I've bet the farm and there's no reversing. In, In essence, I chose the wrong country to introduce this new concept, but I was too naive to understand that until I was was way down the road and didn't have enough resources or time left to move. So, Well, can um, I just jump in? Had you had the time and money, would you have moved? If I still had time and money, uh, depends upon when in the process. But I knew that I had chosen the right location, not just for my concept, but for the country of France. This was a textile town since the 13th century. They've been losing manufacturing jobs for years and years. They needed a new idea. They, They would most likely be open to a new idea that was associated with textile manufacturing. This was outlet centers for manufacturers. Mm. So there was a lot of synergy. And then I enhanced the synergy by saying, uh, listen, I'm not going to trifle with one of the most important cultural aspects of life in France, which is dining. And I said, I won't have any kind of 
quality food offering at my center. I'll have free buses to bring you downtown to all the restaurants there. Come mm. back to shopping when you're ready. And I did, I'm going to say, a dozen different types of initiatives like that to weave in this new concept into the, the French fabric and preserve and enhance as many of those metiers as possible. And I eventually won uh, the local vote seven to zero. It had never happened before in France. I thought I was done. I started to build. And then Jacques Dirac called it in on appeal to the national level, which is the equivalent sort of of going to the Supreme Court. Mm. And there I am stumbling through my pigeon French trying to explain this is in your interest. Right. Um, Going back to an earlier one of your questions, you have to keep the end in mind build your coalition. How is it what you're proposing is in their interest? And if you really believe in your heart, it's not in their interest, you're in the wrong location, you're trying to do the wrong concept, or your timing is off. If you sincerely believe it's there, then you press on. And that's why I pressed on. Right. So you also bet that once you had created those jobs, that even though appeals were pending, if you created the jobs, it was going to be very hard for them to then get rid of the jobs, that they would want to preserve them. They may not be as sold on creation initially, but once the job existed, it existed. And then you have uh, 125 people with their own metier, which I quickly uh, increased to about 240. And then you're playing their game with them. You right. are going to be a job killer. Are you kidding out here in the provinces? The dynamic is Paris has all the jobs and all the job creation and the provinces are left to migrate their young to Paris. And you have to try to reverse that. So there were two elements. One is create those jobs as fast as you can, prove it, and then good luck to them. Right. Um, and at the same time, in order to get there, the national politicians concluded in their infinite wisdom they were going to overturn a unanimous approval in the provinces just when the issue of provinces versus Paris was the hottest political issue on the agenda for that national election for Jacques Chirac's campaign. And I said, you want to kill me, a foreign concept? Fine. And I ended up being front page of the Figaro newspaper saying provinces versus Paris. That's what this is all about. It happens to be there's American, but he's a footnote. This is provinces versus Paris. Right, because you would have the unanimous support of the of the people in the province so in the provinces yes right in the provinces so you had people who helped you navigate the local customs and cultures and and they were invaluable to the process uh for instance negotiating the land deal with the farmers it was sort of surreal listening to you relate that can you explain the negotiation and what was important and how it was managed because i i think that that was really enlightening well the first element of it which was enlightening was that the local politicians, and remember in France, the mayor of each of the 9,000 communes in France signs your birth certificate, signs your death certificate, and signs everything in between, including all building permits. He is God. And when the the mayor and and his uh, officials say to you, oh, the land, then the land is no problem. Well, you'll get the land. We just have to get to this political hurdle. And when I did that, he said, just come see me. You can buy the land from me. Well, I couldn't buy the land from him. It turns out there were they were it was owned in strips. There were 36 separate owners, many of whom couldn't stand each other and couldn't talk to each other because they'd all inherited it through the forefathers. And how are you going to round up 36 different owners across 12 different families? And my French was still, I hadn't spoken French since I sailed through Polynesia a decade before, which had, was good for beaches and boats, but not for negotiations. <laughs> not for land negotiations? Can't imagine why. Not, not with farmers, anyway. <laughs> uh, 
so I uh, I formed this bonding alliance with the uh, notary, Monsieur Le Notaire. And he was quite upset with me because I was impatient because this, I needed to get this whole process going. And he said uh, on his second or third meeting, yes, well, you understand, of course, this takes some time. I said, I got plenty of time. I got till next Saturday. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> this will take six months. And I said, Mr. Notaire, this will not take six months. I, uh, this will not take six months because I don't have it. I will be bankrupt. Right. And so there is this minuet between the the, uh, the the notaire, who's the fifth generation notaire in his family. They pass the medallion one to the next, and this upstart American who barely speaks French. And somehow we form this bond. And by the end, he was jumping around with glee uh, and jump and high fiving me more than I in reverse, because he'd done something he'd never done before, which is make this happen not in six months, but in about a month, a month and a half, maybe. That was record time. It was, that too is in the book, but there's a famous scene in the book where I come back for the third Friday in a row and he's at the top of his stairs and he's holding his hand up saying, don't come up to my office. I have no news for you. And I said, I'm coming up anyway, Monsieur Le Notaire. We need to close this. And he said, I have no news. And I just said, well, then I got news for you. And I didn't know what my news was going to be, but at least it's got in his office. Oh my gosh. You really have a cast iron stomach. I, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, but everybody who, who you, these external people who were critical to your effort, um, but there were also hired guns and there's a downside to hired guns and, and you ran into it a couple of times. So can you explain about that, about understanding when you have an external person, how that, how that can cut both ways? Well, you can do amazing things when you're emotionally and psychologically deeply invested. And that may mean you lose sleep at night because you're always thinking about it. And the hired gun gets paid at the time a thousand francs an hour, you know, six, seven hundred dollars an hour as a fancy lawyer. Uh, He's not so deeply invested, but he does want to make sure you're going to be able to pay his bill. Mm. And as time started stretching out, um, you could just sense, because I hired the fanciest law firm in Paris to, to gain me credibility, because I was brand new. Mm. You could just sense them saying, um, by the way, Mr. Murphy, I, mm, I'm going to send my bill uh, next week. That's okay, isn't it? And it was off cycle about two weeks too early. And I'm thinking, he thinks I'm about to go under. Mm. Um, little did he know, I was about to go under, but I wasn't going to let it go under. Right. Uh, and so... Somehow you have to form that, uh, as the French call it, a bon contact, a good contact. And a good contact means they feel it in their stomach and they feel that there's a bond there. And all of a sudden, the talk of invoices goes away and the issuance of invoices silently goes away. And they're calling you at night with a new idea. Hmm. And what got us to that point, I think, was... uh, what Confucius used to call uh, absolute sincerity. I just laid it all on the line. I didn't ever say, I'm about to go broke. You understand this is my last chance. I just said, uh, they could see me giving it everything. And I'd go home at night to my adorable wife and and 10 month old child. And sometime later, a second child and sometime later than my third child. Um, And then my fourth, we had all daughters, four daughters. So uh, they could sort of sense that, um, there was a reason why I was so focused. Right. And, and they, they bought into the 
frankly, at the end of the day, they bought into the whole vision. And if mm. you, and I spend a lot of time, the subtext in the deal is that context matters a lot. And I, and I describe how it matters when you're in a foreign culture, but the flip side is true. If you present yourself totally sincerely and you show them in essence, you know, you're a person and you're vulnerable and you're make you just determined to make this happen, you will win converts and they will stay stick by your side if you've chosen well. Hmm. That's really interesting. It will transcend business and you want it to transcend business. And is that would you say that's a cultural universal? I don't think that's a universal even within America. That but I mean but I mean the once you if you stay true and you are authentic that when you connect authentically that that yes. is that that is the the key regardless yes. of what yes. what culture. So, yes, I this concept we rolled out in uh, a dozen countries across Europe and that was always the case and one of the issues is you know what is leadership and under these circumstances how does one become a leader and then mm-hmm. a manager? And um, I maintain you have to be so far out ahead of your troops. You take all the shots and the arrows and you, uh, you know, fall into the rut and could get yourself all cut up. But you show them that you're protecting them from that. It's your concept. You have to prove it. And you got to be the leader. And when they see that and they see you get beaten up publicly at hearings and otherwise, and you just dust yourself off and go right back at it, then then they're believers. And right. Right. Well, and that that goes on to that that sort of segues beautifully, I must say, into what I wanted to cover next, which was teams. And you speak several times in the book about uh, American character vis-a-vis teaming. And can you take us through a little bit of your uh, philosophy around your own participation in sports growing up and how it affected your approach to teams and, and how that's sort of American? Well, uh there were two teams, two types of teams when I was growing up, and I do talk about them in, in La Deal, which is there's the family, and I'm one of five, and it four boys and, and our sister uh, right in the middle. And in our family, but in most families that are large, um, you know, good luck getting out of cleaning the dishes. Good luck uh, ducking uh, your, you know, your Sunday morning responsibilities. That isn't going to happen because your teammates are going to keep you honest. That mm-hmm. is my case. And then when you actually grow up uh, literally on athletic teams again and again and again, three seasons a year, four seasons, if you're doing something in the, in the summertime, then you know that to pick one sport, you know, the most important thing is that all the teammates are rowing in the same direction to the same cadence mm-hmm. or, or their mind is on the same race with the same destination. And when you are an American in an American high school, uh, you know, and you're on the football team for the fifth year in a row, you can, you can manage that. And then the question is, how good are you? Well, it turns out when you're in a foreign culture, and especially one like France, which highly values the individual athlete, the solo sailor around the world, the tennis player. Soccer is different. Uh, that's that's a, that's a real team sport. But there's to get everyone to operate in that same cadence in the same direction. And there's so many different biases events. I had French, Italians, I had Germans, I had Austrians. You know, getting them all going the same. That was the hardest part of the entire. <laughs> but that's the goal. 
and never give up on the goal. And you got to be both the captain of the team and the coach and the number one player um, who plays all 60 minutes. You've got to take the injuries, uh, stretching the metaphor. And there's a reason why the book is called Le Deal, but the subtitle, How a Young American, I was young, in business, by the way, in love and in over his head, kickstarted this uh, you know, big industry in Europe. Um, and, and the business part of it implies underneath it, when you get into the storyline, there's a team behind it. There's a team right. approach. Right. So in, in, in France, where you have the individual athlete and, and people sort of staying, maybe they're running their, their race, but they're in their lane and um, they're, they're in their lane. <laughs> and some of the stories you talk about these meetings where you'd have communication, you'd think certain things were happening, but it didn't happen the way you thought it would. Um, how did you, how did you adjust for that culture? I mean, I mean, you, in the book, it sort of skipped a little bit in terms of you, you did it, but how you do have this mentality. You do have people not necessarily marketing isn't necessarily telling um, sales what they're doing exactly um, until they've done it, until they announce in the meeting what they've accomplished. How how did you get the mindset to shift? I mean, you talked about you changing in order, you understand that you're in their culture rather than, you know, it's a team of their culture. And so you need to understand their culture. But what was it? What was your adjustment? How did you make it work? Enormous amounts of time, one-on-one, more than they wanted to spend. Ah, that's interesting. Before those team meetings, when I realized they weren't even in the same boat. How could I get them to row together if they're still ashore or they're on a motorboat in the opposite direction? So I tried to create the environment um, and set the, the the field, if you will, and the ground rules before you ever get into the meeting. And that means a lot of time. And depending upon which country, it could mean a lot of meals. Mm. Um, it could mean um, just enormous amounts of time on the road. And in France, we were looking at sites all over the country, so you would take trains. Sometimes I'd ask, you know, the finance person to come with me because I had to get out to see these sites and I had to go by train. The finance person didn't need to go there, but it's the only time I could spend with my CFO. And I'd say, come on, uh, let's, right. let's revisit last week's meeting. But that didn't go so well. Ah, oui, oui, bien sûr, mais c'est un gros problème. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So that's that's a, the never, never, ever give up theme, which right. is run throughout the book. Right. Well, lastly, you updated the book with an epilogue, which briefly discusses your new business, Digiplex. But you point out that while it may appear to be pretty different from retail, it, like your other ventures, have what you describe as pattern recognition at their foundation. Uh, what do you mean by that? In... Uh, one of the most basic elements of any business school course or course on economics is the product life cycle. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the S curve. And when you have a new concept come out, for example, in the 1920s, uh, an automobile, which didn't exist before uh, mass production, it's in its infancy, but it doesn't sell very much. When you prove that the concept's good enough, that it could be accepted by a vast, uh, wide uh, market, then um, it'll go up um, vertically, and that means you're selling more volume. Over time, it could be that a better mousetrap is made and the Ford Model T starts selling, uh, it tops out at a maximum and then it starts declining and that's the maturity and decline. And mm. you, 
you put all that together and there's a pattern uh, of each of those phases, infancy, growth, maturity, decline. And in each of the three concepts I identified in America and I've imported into Europe over the last 29, almost 30 years, I start out at the infancy stage and I visualize and I project I think this concept could grow up to X uh, in the following kind of countries. I'm better about picking my countries now and, uh, and my cultures. And uh, it's all underpinned by real estate, which helps with your financing. It's all structured in a way that's called the technical term an opco propco. It's an operating company on top of a, a property company. Mm. Um, and while it is so hard to introduce new concepts and roll them out across Europe, because there is no Europe, there's a collection loosely of nation states, but more of competing geographic regions that cross national borders. Mm. What you have is um, perpetual barriers to entry. And oh. those, uh, an entrepreneur or business doesn't like barriers to entry because it slows everything down or shuts them down. I love barriers to entry because what happens is once you get over that barrier, good luck to the next person. The barrier just got higher in Europe. They like job preservation, not job creation, culturally, not necessarily on a government level, but culturally. So it's a pattern. Uh, basically, I'm doing the same general approach. Um, even though the industries are very different, uh, the timing is very different, and my teams are totally different. So interesting. In the forward of the book, you're described as a Wayne Gretzky of entrepreneurs, which is to say you don't skate to where the puck is, but where it's going. And that's one of a, my favorite analogies, and it's rarely been applied so aptly. So it's, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Your book is a rare thing, a business book that reads like a novel. I've always believed that stories are the best way to retain new ideas. So I encourage everyone to give it a read. A link to purchase is going to be included on the podcast webpage. Thank you, Gabriella, for having me. Thank you for reading the deal. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>